Hello, everyone. It's Mike Stewart for the Tommy Rowe Podcast, and welcome to the Tommy Rowe Podcast here at TommyRowePodcast.com. From Cabbage Town to Tinseltown and places in between. Chapter 2, Segment 1. Every hyphen is a line of segregation. On a warm spring day, a little bit more than six months after the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, and John Wayne began to transition from a cowboy to a war hero, Thomas David Rowe came into this world at Grady Memorial Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia, on May 9, 1942. Yes, Tommy Rowe is my real name. I get asked that often. It seems too convenient. By that I mean it sounds like something someone named Seymour Blastenbaum might have chosen if he had wanted to get into show business. As for my birth, well, obviously the hostilities of World War II were not in my parents' outline as they planned an addition to their family. I was simply born into the reality of the times and a Southern culture and tradition that I had nothing to do with. I will admit, even though I was an observant and inquisitive child, the first few years are a bit of a blur. I know my dad was a patriot and did what he could to aid the war effort. Though the South was still licking its wounds inflicted by the Civil War to some degree, the folks there were supportive of the country and always have been. Keep in mind, in 1942, the death of Abraham Lincoln was pretty much as close in calendar years as December 7, 1941 is to today. But for me, having lived and traveled around various places in the U.S., I have discovered that there honestly is a different sense of country and the American culture in the South. Though often misunderstood, I believe those who are maligned, criticized, and ridiculed as rubes or hicks and labeled as trash in the South and elsewhere by those who consider themselves open-minded and welcoming of all points of view, love this country. It's just a very different sense of patriotism based on the historic traditions of the nation. My family has what many today might call a long history within the U.S., having immigrated from Europe during the colonial days in the mid-1700s, before the United States became the United States. As such, members of my family may well have fought with Washington, Grant, Lee, Pershing, and Patton. No, not because they couldn't get along with anyone. I meant that there was and always will be a sense of duty and honor within my family. Seriously, I would love to say my ancestors were the ones who threw the tea into the Boston Harbor, but from what we've been able to discern, mostly through the diligent efforts of my Aunt Margaret, who pieced together a family history many years ago, my family traditionally favored farming, and so after crossing the Atlantic without papers, only because there weren't any at that time, they moved to the southern colonies to establish themselves in the fertile soils found below what would soon be dubbed the Mason-Dixon Line. That didn't exist in the 1700s. In fact, I'm not even sure if Charles Mason or Jeremy Dixon had even been born at that point. So as you can see, the Rowe family in North America dates back to the earlier days of this country's history, and we all wear this badge of honor with pride. There was a rich tradition not only in vegetables, but also in music as well. None of my ancestors ever became famous as mainstays of vaudeville or anything like that. But what some failed to recognize is that back in the 18th and 19th centuries, there were very few forms of entertainment. 
That's why premiums were put on learning to play instruments and the ability to take part in any performance that might happen in the evenings. Yes, it was a different world than that of today, and yet my family tree, though decorated with its share of fruits, nuts, and saps, I'm sure, is also filled with music and its roots. I was always interested in music and performing. Entertainers at all levels and in all fields fascinated me. To illustrate exactly how inbred such thinking was for me, I remember slipping away from my mother while she was shopping when I was about uh, six years old. I moseyed next door to a theater showing some risque movie. I don't remember exactly what was happening or even how I managed to get in, but I remember the star on the screen had nothing on but a bra. From what I recall of her, yes, it was an actress. She was, as we say in the South, rather blessed. Needless to say, my mom wasn't very happy when she found me, not only because I'd run away, but also my taste in movies, in her opinion, left much to be desired. However, that wasn't the only time I wandered off. A few years later, I ran away from my grandma Rose's house with their Cocker Spaniel Laddie in Little Five Points, which is a small section of Atlanta. When a policeman finally located me, I was corralled in the Little Five Points Theater watching a movie. I wish I could remember the movie, but it doesn't matter. I do remember that one of the features was a black-and-white western. Another characteristic of my lineage is that my family has never been one to beat around the bush. We have always believed in being straightforward and honest about everything. I know this trait might not translate well into the politically correct world of today, where we have to finesse the English language and often the truth to find appropriate euphemisms to say things in a manner that won't offend anyone. But in the Roe family, there were and still are very few gray areas aside from the tops of our heads. For example, in my family, work has always been work. You never say no to work. And hard work is the best. Those who choose not to work are lazy bums. Oops, hold on. Give me a second. That's not politically correct, is it? Let me rephrase that. Those who are allergic to work are lazy bums. So my family motto has always been, if you're going to do something, do it right. No sense doing something half-ass. What I mean is, so much of what a child becomes as an adult is a direct result of what he learns as a child. If you place a premium on the right values, you will discover the dividends are plentiful. This is not to say I made perfect choices all through my youth. Trust me, I didn't. I was a normal, mischievous kid and got into my share of trouble. But mostly, trouble in the 1940s and 50s meant skipping school or perhaps chewing gum in class. Compared to our schools today, it was a very innocent time indeed. I haven't mentioned it yet, and I don't think too many people are aware of the fact that I was born with two club feet, and so throughout my earliest days I was forced to wear a cast on my legs from the knee down. Imagine being a small child and not being able to run around with the other kids. I can't really remember it clearly, but it had to be frustrating. To this day, I attribute the fact that I walk normally to Dr. Kite and the staff at Scottish Rite Children's Hospital in Atlanta. They worked with my parents to help me until my feet were gradually straightened and I could walk. 
I'm quite thankful for their efforts on my behalf, and the good work of Scottish Rite Children's Hospital continues to make a difference in the lives of children today. As a bit of a related story that I think should be told here, every man down south in my dad's generation had a pocket knife. They used it for any and everything, you name it. The pocket knife was the tool of choice. Peel an apple, peel an orange, trim your nails. However, not everyone was enamored with this practice. My mom was one of them. If she were within eyeshot when my dad was about to peel a piece of fruit, she would immediately grab the knife and wash it until the handle just about fell off. At such times, my dad would just laugh and call her Old Dutch Cleanser. Well, how this all relates to me, as the story goes, during the time when I had cast on my legs, it, the pocket knife, became a medical instrument. Whenever the itching became unbearable, my dad would whip out his trusty old pocket knife and slip the blade inside the cast to relieve it so that I would stop crying. I'm sure he did this only when my mother wasn't looking. Moving on with the story, after the casts were removed once and for all, at about the age of three, the first order of business for me was learning how to walk. It wasn't the easiest thing for someone like myself who was, as we say, a spirited child. There was one situation when I gained a bit of an unwanted education in some respects. Not that education was ever unwelcome, but the process by which I learned an important lesson was, let's just say, less than glorious. The lesson I learned was about family. It was during this time around the age of five, I made a trip with my family to visit my Aunt Grace in North Georgia. She lived way out in the sticks, and it's important you understand the circumstances surrounding the event. First, I hadn't been walking long and was still getting adjusted to the newfound freedom. In other words, my balance and the strength in my legs were suspect, to say the least. In those days, not too many people in that part of Georgia had indoor plumbing. Well, to keep it as the guys at Fruit of the Loom would surely say brief, I had a little accident involving the outhouse on Aunt Grace's farm. Discretion keeps me from using the actual term we had for it. However, I'm sure many of you can figure that out on your own. It sounded a lot like sitter said with a lisp. Anyway, I needed to answer nature's call, and so that meant making use of the facility. I can't actually say how it happened, or if it was simply a result of my wanting to be independent, but in trying not to impale myself on the vast array of things that surely were growing in, on, and around the toilet seat, I uh, somehow managed to fall into the muck. No, this isn't where I got the idea for Dizzy. The result was a valuable lesson learned. Wandering off to the outdoor john without supervision was a foolish thing for a five-year-old to do, and I expected to be punished for my error in judgment but I had very few options given the circumstances, so I just started calling for help. No, not with my mobile phone, with my five-year-old voice. Within a few seconds, my cousin Garnet, though I called him uncle, don't ask me why, came a-running. As he fished me out of the crapper, caked and coated with an assortment of scents and stains that were about me, rather than make a big issue out of it, 
He simply took me up to the house where my mother and her sisters cleaned me up best they could. In a short time, I was back in the fields chasing ducks as if nothing had happened. Oh, sure, I was given a brief lecture featuring an assortment of Southern philosophy. But the sublime lesson that did come through was one that lasted a lifetime. I sincerely believe that event was the first instance where I gained an appreciation of mother-son relationship. It was one of my many such incidents that helped me gain the perspective I have today. Family, for me, is what life is all about, and I think down deep that may have been the saving grace throughout my life. I guess the point of all this is to simply illustrate the path from which I came. I was anything but born with a silver spoon in my mouth. It was quite the contrary, to say the least. My family did what they could and managed to keep food on the table and clothes on their backs. Beyond that, there wasn't much to write home about. And yet, we were all quite happy and thankful for having a home we could write to. In many ways, the South of the 1940s and 50s was very different than the rest of the country. Though patriotic beyond any question, as I said, we also still housed what would be considered some traditional old-world thoughts and attitudes in some not-so-positive ways. They were, in fact, based on sheer ignorance. I grew up at a time when real racism did exist in the country. It isn't like today, where I think it is more of a political issue used by far too many against innocent people. I believe it may be more of a detriment to those they claim they want to help. That, too, in my opinion, is just as wrong, if not worse. And yet, even though the prevailing attitudes of the day were beyond reasonable justification, it wasn't exactly as so many say it was. Extremes always make the news, not the norms. Honestly, we, the ordinary rank and file in the South, just didn't know anything different. As a young boy growing up in Atlanta, it was just the way things were. Not until I reached my early teen years did I begin to realize something was wrong with this picture. Segregation was a way of life in the South for most of a century after the Emancipation Proclamation. The concept of segregation was based on very narrow-minded primitive thinking and ritual from a small number of people who had some serious control issues. However, sadly, that small minority was the party in control. Keep the word party in mind for later in this book. Yes, it was completely contrary to all Christian morals and values. And yes, there were those who took it to a very perverted extreme. In all honesty, however, I have to tell you, my neighborhood was hardly the poster picture that has been drawn to sell tickets to the ball. First and foremost, discrimination and segregation in any form are not and never will be right. Throughout the history of the world, and more pointedly for this story, during the 20th century, discrimination existed in many places in the United States, and not just with colors. Italians, Irish, Jews, Armenians, Asians, Hispanics, and just about every culture that had immigrants coming to this country faced some form of discrimination based on their origins and ancestry. However, the ancestors of our African-American brothers and sisters did not come to America by choice. They were brought to our country on slave ships and treated as property. 
It is very different than choosing to bring your family to a new land with the hopes and dreams of having a better life. Although this history is cruel and shameful, I choose to believe the descendants of the families who suffered through this period of our history are happy to be living in a new America with all the opportunities we have in this great country. Fate can be cruel and rewarding. In the ordinary working class of the South circa 1950, segregation was not about hate but tradition. I didn't know anyone who had ever owned a slave. My family certainly didn't. We have always been in the working class. I also didn't know anyone who was ever actually a slave. Those days had passed long before my birth. As such, those like my family who grew up with segregation never gave it a second thought. We knew it wasn't right, and yet even the federal government separated people in the military. So how were we to think differently? Obviously, this was our own ignorance, and over time, we all began to recognize the injustice. People are people, no matter where they live or what the prevailing attitudes might be. Everyone is the same. That isn't a governmental right. That is a human right. It is also a biblical right. And yet, many who were a part of the injustice were quite devout and prominent in their churches. Convention was no excuse for doing the wrong thing. To put all of this into what I believe is the proper perspective, when I was young, before I turned six, we lived in a section of Atlanta called Cabbage Town. It was a real working-class neighborhood where most of the people worked at the Fulton Bag and Cotton Mill that was located in that part of town. Lower-income families with mostly European ancestral roots were the predominant workers and occupants. These families immigrated from countries where a dietary staple for a great many was, and still is to this day, cabbage. Also, as you probably figured out, Cabbage was not the most costly of food items. We weren't hobnobbing with the Atlanta Country Club class by any stretch of the imagination. The Atlanta I knew bore little resemblance to Margaret Mitchell's version in Gone with the Wind, unless you are reading the chapters about the remnants of Sherman's march to Savannah. And so as a result of the various environmental elements on any given day, if you wandered through the streets of my neighborhood, you were sure to sense, for better or worse, the unmistakable scent of cooked cabbage coming from most every kitchen in the neighborhood. As circumstances tend to be, down the street and not across any tracks from my neighborhood was a similar one that was predominantly black or African American. Again, this is contrary to what many today will say about the South during that time. Though the traditions and laws of the day segregated us, the separation was all of about two blocks. We were in essence economically in the same boat, and our living environs were fundamentally the same. So as a result of the proximity of our neighborhoods, I often found myself playing with the young black kids who lived down the street. Did I care? Did I even know such expressions as the other side of the tracks? Of course not. Most certainly, there were those within my family who weren't all that happy with the situation and my choice of playmates. They expressed their displeasure openly, but as I said, it was based on tradition, not hate. You just didn't go against tradition. 
But we kids didn't care. We made our own tradition. Sure, I noticed the difference between us in the sense that I was white and some of the other kids were black. But I didn't think of my friends as black friends and white friends. They were just my friends at home, and to me, they were no different than my friends at school. Since we were required to attend different schools because of the segregation laws that were a part of our reality, we only saw each other after school on weekends or during vacation periods. We played together not because we were trying to make a political statement. We played together because we were all kids enduring and surviving a similar reality. However, what made the difference, I think, was the fact that we had one set of rules for everyone in our games. That is where the politicians and the so-called activists make their mistake. In a lot of ways, what I grew up with could well have been enough to change the established attitudes had the powers on both sides of the issue wanted the change. What I mean to say is, the more attention you draw to something, the less likely it is that there will be change without resistance. The more special rules you make on behalf of one group and to the detriment of another, the more resentment that is bound to take place. The sad reality is that all the same people who today tell us not to label people have labels for seemingly everyone. In my opinion, it has hurt more than helped relations between people. In its way, such attitudes and behaviors have kept everyone segregated, perhaps even more today than back in the 1950s. That is why I say it's more a political issue than it ever should have become. I don't mean to become preachy, so please forgive me. But I ask you to consider this. How can you have a colorblind society if you continue to call attention to the different colors? This same thought extends to other social areas as well. The only label anyone needs is a name. If I can see this, why is it those who are much more knowledgeable and educated about such things and in a position to do something can't? To me, this is very simple logic. The rationale between others' thoughts is not the whole but the self. It always comes back to the same thing. It always comes back to what's in it for me, and ultimately, money. If you look around today, you will discover that there still is a great deal of segregation. As I said, it is partly due to governmental efforts that make sure everyone calls attention to his or her ancestry. There is nothing wrong with being proud of your lineage. That isn't what I'm saying. There are those who come from different, distinct ancestors who choose to live in a community with others who have the same family origins. That is nothing new. It's been that way throughout most of the history of this country which explains why there are so many of Dutch descent living in Pennsylvania, so many of Italian ancestry living in the New York City area, so many Armenians living in Glendale, California. You can pick a nationality and find some pocket where there is a vast population from similar backgrounds. It makes the transition much easier. However, that's the part that I think may no longer be a priority for many for a variety of reasons. Today, it seems as if everyone believes they need to have a hyphen attached to their moniker or label to make them feel as if they are part of something. When I was growing up, I don't recall having anything but Americans in my neighborhood. 
No matter what the circumstances were, no matter what our ancestry, origins, or skin color may have been, we all still considered ourselves Americans. That's quite a dramatic contrast to today. Today there are all sorts of Americans. There are Asian Americans, African Americans, Italian Americans, Irish Americans, and Native Americans, to name but a few. Such attention is, in my opinion, quite clearly contrary to the very problem those who began the trend claim they want to solve. To me, every hyphen is a line of segregation. It separates people. This is the United States of America. Go to other countries. Do you see Turkish Germans, African English, Spanish Chinese? And tell me, what is an American Indian? Is it someone born in the USA who lives in Bombay or New Delhi? It's only here in this united country where we claim to welcome people from all over the world that we do everything we possibly can to keep everyone divided and at odds with each other. And sadly, it all seems to come back to the same thing. There is no money to be made from peaceful coexistence and cooperation. Unity just isn't profitable for those who use that platform for personal attention and gain. I know there will be those who will read all of the foregoing and try to distort and ridicule what I am saying here because I am quite aware that these subjects are hot spots for many in this country. This too is against everything I have ever believed in regarding freedom. We have freedom of speech, and yet we are often attacked for speaking freely. Here within these simple offerings, I mean not to offend or incite. That's not my point. I'm just a rock and roll guy, but I do have my observations based upon knowledge I've gained on the roads I've traveled and the variety of people I've met along the way. I will be the first to tell you I don't claim to know everything. I only know what has been a part of my life. I only know what I've seen within my life experiences. The point I've tried to make within the preceding pages is a very simple one. As our culture becomes more and more battered as a result of decisions made by those who can make a difference, I wonder what is ahead for my children and grandchildren. Who will fight a war for this country should there ever be another? What would they be fighting for? I don't know if the kids today appreciate the fiber of this nation's history. In the past, there was a heritage that was being reinforced daily and defended by those who believed in the country and appreciated the American culture. I met many such people in my travels around the country, and around the world for that matter. But that was 50 years ago. Patriotism seems to be lost, buried beneath a bevy of political choices. You cannot render the history of a nation insignificant and continually erode the framework without doing damage to the foundation. In reflecting on my youth, simply put, none of us in Cabbage Town was in a position to affect change directly with regards to race relations, and yet we didn't go along with the party line. We made a line of our own. You live in the world you have, and you adapt and adjust. As I have said, I also believe all the labeling of people that is done does more harm than good. It seems to hurt the same people those who create the labels claim they are trying to help. I think the evidence is undeniably clear to those who want to see it. 
Sadly, we live in a world where too many people don't seem to want to see the truth that is right before their eyes. We kids in Cabbage Town had it right all along. We were just kids in the neighborhood. We didn't have labels. We just had names. We proudly saluted the flag each morning before school, and the only colors we knew were red, white, and blue. That was the America I grew up in. The mere fact, as you will come to discover, that my music is based on what could be considered crossover routes that span cultural bridges over waters other than those of my personal stream should tell you how I've always felt about people and races. I understood the plight of those who faced the impropriety and the unfairness of segregation, and yet I had no vehicle available to effect change beyond simply doing the right thing and setting what I believed was the proper example. In my own way, I was making a statement. That statement continued into my life in music, though I was never one to capitalize on it for personal gain. I just never viewed anyone as being different from me. We were all passengers on a ship called Harmony. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Tommy Rowe Podcast. Uh, be sure to tell your friends, share us in social media. More importantly, make sure that you subscribe to the podcast uh, in iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Um, we want to let uh, all of Tommy's fans know what's going on, and this is a great way to do it. Uh, visit TommyRowePodcast.com to see links to things uh, that Tommy is offering, like his new album, uh, Tommy Rowe meets Barefoot Jerry, plus all of the opportunities to get his music in CD Baby and iTunes. And until next time, this is Mike Stewart for Tommy Rowe and TommyRowePodcast.com. Sweet little Sheila, you